You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Well, we are in our fourth week of a series centered around prayer. We're going to be in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18 today, and we're going to read a parable about a persistent widow that has great significance for us today. So Luke 18, starting in verse 1, and we'll read that together. It's on the screen, and you're welcome to join us in your Bible as well. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but after he said to himself, afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says? And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over him? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you today. And we thank you that we get to gather here. It's not unknown to us that this is not a rhythm that everybody gets to do. And so, Lord, thank you for gathering us today. And even though the snow was difficult to get through, that you're here with us today. And Lord, will you just be in our corporate worship? Will you be in our corporate hearts and our love for you? Um, So, Lord, will you take this word? Will you make it work in our lives? Will you bring us conviction and gladness to all the areas we need it? We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. And so what we pick up on here in Luke 18 is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for the process of his departure. There are difficult days ahead for his followers. There are difficult days ahead. There will be people that will come that will bring threats to their lives, threats to their relationships, threats to their reputations. And in light of all of that, Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray and not lose heart. I think we can imagine this sort of in this way. If you think of a a movie scene where the hero or the leader is telling his followers that he's about ready to leave, he's gonna leave them alone. He says, I'm gonna go away for a while. And in my absence, there's gonna be some hard things that come your way. There are gonna be people who are gonna come after you. There are gonna be people who wanna hurt you and your family and harm you in various different ways. Now, we would expect that hero or leader to leave those people with some sort of tool, some sort of weapon to protect themselves, to sustain themselves in his absence. We would call that leader or hero cruel or heartless if they left them vulnerable and exposed. 
And sort of that is what is happening here with Jesus, with his impending death and resurrection and ascension in mind. He is telling his disciples what will be their most trusted tool, their weapon, if you allow me, to defend themselves and be sustained going forward. He says, you ought to always pray. Now, maybe we wish Jesus would have given us a lightsaber instead of praying, but this is God's tool for his people to connect with us. It is the source in which all of our defense and offense and substance and maturity and joy will be ours in this day and the days ahead. Prayer is our weapon. And it's safe to say that we see and connect prayer with tangible outcomes in our life. That we connect prayer with our supplications, our ask, our request to the Lord that he would give us some things, that he would respond to our prayers, that he would give us the desires of our hearts. Yet we have learned in this series, hopefully, hopefully, that the greatest prize of prayer is a stronger, deeper, more intimate relationship with God himself. And so here in Luke 18, Jesus teaches his people that they need to live and stay in greater trust in his plan, in himself, in his love, through prayer. That is our most important connection, that we pray in a way that we don't lose heart. Now, there is a way that you can read this parable and arrive at the wrong belief about prayer and about God. At first glance, when you read this text, and I have been guilty of this myself, you can believe that this parable makes it seem that if we pray enough, if we annoy God enough, that he will eventually relent and give us what we want. I call that the snack God. My two girls love snacks. I don't know if you've had children before that love snacks, and they ask for snacks some 10 or 15 times in a day, even immediately following their dinner or lunch. And at some point in their request of snacks, as strong as I might be, I relent, and I give them the applesauce packet, right? And this is sort of what we can read this passage as, that if we annoy God enough, he'll give us what we want. And what is dangerous about that approach is it leaves us to believe that God's goodness and love is somehow tied to how desperate I am for something, how much I really deeply desire something. It teaches us that God might only give me what I want if I truly, really, really, really wanted and if I'm really willing to annoy him. But it also implies this. It also implies that if we didn't get what we want, if we didn't get the desires of our heart, that we didn't want it enough, or that we had a lack of faith in our asking. And there are many wicked and evil teachers that have existed in the Christian faith who have tried to convey to others because of their affluence and their material prosperity that God loves them because, look, he has given us what we really want. It's a dangerous way to read this parable. And so I want us to be careful in thinking of the parable like that. Ultimately, it makes us think too much of ourselves. The message of this parable centers around the character of God and his deep love for justice and his deep love for his people. And it's meant to reassure his disciples that they would never be abandoned, that God was not going to leave them. And it would convey to them his sacrificial love and delight in his faithful. 
And that was encouragement for them to pray. And so Jesus talks about two people. He talks about this judge that respected, didn't respect God, didn't love God, didn't respect man. In other words, this guy's a complete jerk. He's a narcissist. He loves himself. He cares about himself alone. We cannot associate this judge and his character with God himself. God is unlike this judge in many ways and only similar in a few. And in that city, there was a widow who had been wronged. And she, as we can read and presume, she's right. She's right in her cause. She's demanding. She's persisting for justice because of the rightness of her cause. Now, one of the things that fascinates me about Scripture is the focus that our Scriptures put on widows. There are two parables that center around widows. One that we just read today. The second has to do with a widow who gives two small copper coins as an offering that we find in a few Gospels. Jesus himself consistently, intentionally, shows compassion and care to widows. And the entirety of our Old Testament and New Testament advocates for the proper accounting for widows and devotion to their care. In this world of chaos, in this world that focuses on ourselves, it's often the scripture that stirs us again towards greater love and devotion to those who are widowed in this world. And so there's some deep, Imagery that is derived from the idea of a widow that is seen in the first century here with Christ. First of all, we have to understand that women in the first century were treated in some regard as property. Now, the nation of Israel treated, if you can, you can make a balance, they treated women more dignitatively than the rest of the cultures, but it's still, they were almost viewed as property. Few owned property, few earned income. They had very few rights. Women were not entitled to inheritance. That was a birthright that was given to the son. And so you've got this interesting story, this backstory that is to be known about widows. And on top of that, on top of that, if her husband died in that day, she would be without a safety net without ample opportunity to provide for herself and especially provide for herself and her children if she had them. And so widows in that day faced lots of hardships. On top of that, there were leaders in the synagogue who were misusing their position. They presented themselves as people with integrity that were very welcoming towards widows, but the real intent of their heart was deception, to be a thief, And in Mark 12, Jesus cries out to these religious leaders. He says, woe to the teachers of the law that devour widows' houses and make show of lengthy prayers. And so some of the religious leaders of the day were even stealing the meager resources left of these widows. And so this persistent widow would be a woman that knew a lot about the cruelty of life in that day. She would have been dependent on aid of others, help along the way. And in fact, there were people that took advantage of her. And to say that people taking advantage of her in her lowly position isn't just unfortunate, would be, is unfortunate, is an understatement. It's downright evil. And so on top of that, 
you throw in this factor that she has lost her husband, her partner, her betrothed. Not only is she lacking in loss, at loss physically and materially, but she's in deep pain emotionally and spiritually, grieving the loss of her husband. And so this widow gives us a picture of somebody who's at tremendous disadvantage. She's dependent in virtually every way. She's in pain. She's in grief. Do you sense her state here? Her only action is persistency. The only hope that she has is persistency in her cause, which eventually wears down the judge. The parable is clear that the judge's motivation was changed not out of respect to God or respect to men, but simply because this woman would not give up. She was righteous in her cause. She was treated unjustly, and it drove her to keep petitioning the only person that could change her plight who could make it right. It didn't matter what kind of person he was. He was her only hope. The judge's character is corrupt, but his authority is real. She knows her only option is appealing to his authority. And I want to come back to this imagery of widows in a bit here. And so Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to consider this unrighteous judge who eventually but reluctantly gives in. And I want you to understand that I am not like him. I am not like him. Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Jesus says, I am not like this man. And that declaration is twofold for us. One being that we don't lose heart in this, that that we don't lose heart believing that we can't trust God's character, that we can't trust his goodness, that we can't trust his love, that we trust God has a love for us and his people. And that too, that our frequent petitions to the Lord don't have us losing heart believing that God is acting unrighteously or indifferent to our cries that we don't build stories in our mind that he's cruel and distant and lose heart. And so Jesus uses this terminology elect here as a reference to God's faithful. And that word poses some challenges for us. Some of you know there are deep theological implications of the idea of God's elect. It applies that God foreknows all who will come to faith. That salvation isn't the product of our searching or our better understanding or even human efforts, but a gracious and loving gift given to us by the God of the universe. It means the only reason that we can know God, love God, and worship God is that he has revealed himself to us in a way and given us the understanding and knowledge to know it. Salvation comes from God alone. It means this, that God knows his people and God keeps his people. And that is joy to know that. There are are many who have believed in their day that they have gone too far. That they have done things to disqualify themselves for a relationship with God. Many who see themselves as unworthy of God's affection and love. They don't possess anything special or remarkable. Why would God even pursue me? Many become embarrassed at their lack of prayer, at their lack of steps towards the Lord. And in some way, 
we believe that because of those realities that we cannot come to God. It comes from a belief that God only loves me because of what I do, what I know, and how often I think of him. It's a belief that I'm only as valuable to God as I behave. But that terminology elect implies something different. It implies that God is incapable of losing you, friend. That God is incapable of losing you, no matter how unqualified you are, no matter how unremarkable you think you are, no matter how distant you feel from God. God saved you. Think of all the men and women in the Old Testament who were terrible people for such long periods of time. Think of King David, this man who was an adulterer, a deceiver, a liar, a murderer. Those seem to be actions that would disqualify one from God's love and relationship in our own estimation, yet they weren't. God used it, he redeemed it. It didn't mean it was right. It didn't mean it didn't break the law, but it means that if you belong to God, you don't determine his love for you. And his glory is tied in you loving him, growing him on this earth, and that is his work. Our scripture says that God will complete what he began in you. It is his work to bring that completion. God will bring to completion what he started in us. Our flourishing in life is connected to our obedience to God's word and his spirit. Our obedience is the evidence that we do love God. But your obedience does not create your salvation. That is the work of God. And so what that means for you and I, friends, is that we could never have gone too far from God because he's never left you. It means that you've never done too much to be forgiven. It means that you could never wander away too far to come back. Many of your hesitations in prayer, many of the reasons you lose heart is because you see yourself as unqualified. You see yourself as unworthy. But listen, you can't qualify yourself on this earth for the sort of mercy and forgiveness that the Lord has given to us. It's grace. It's grace. So stop trying to think that you can and stop losing heart. It's not too late. God loves his children. And that's what he's telling his disciples here, that he's not cruel, that he's not distant, that he's merciful, that he's kind, that he's perfect in all of those things. He's flawless, without defect. He's remarkably patient and kind, and we can believe that. Secondly, he's encouraging his disciples to not lose heart in their petitions. Even if they feel his responses seem uncaring and untimely, One of the easiest ways for us to lose heart in the area of prayer comes from what feels like a lack of response from God. And like this widow, we often feel we must do the same when we pray, to use our persistency to overcome God's reluctancy. We miss the point of the parable entirely if we believe that. Jesus didn't say always pray and not lose heart because God is reluctant, but because he isn't reluctant. And that is our encouragement to keep praying. Our God hears the prayers of his children. He, above all else, is a lover of justice. He wants the world to see himself through us, through our love for him. 
And sometimes it does seem as if God is reluctant in answering our prayers. And what is almost automatic in us, is it not? That we create a story that God is absent on the job, that he's off the job. Yet we know that what is very often the case is the delays in our prayer are not needed for for God to change, but for him to change us. Persistency in prayer brings a transforming element into our lives, building us into the character of God himself. It is the way that God builds into us his heart. It's the way that God builds into us a way to care about the things that he cares about, the way that he cares about them. God hears his faithful. He loves us. But sometimes he doesn't respond in the ways that we desire. And sometimes we feel he doesn't respond at all. And what Jesus is contending for us today, friends, is that we not lose heart, that we don't confuse his delays for disdain, that we know God is responding to us, that he is loving us, that he is working in us something that will promote his glory, our joy, and peace, and that will be evident in our life. But it won't always come to us the way that we want it, nor in the time or manner that we desire. Jesus says, will he delay long over them? He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, we live in an instant gratification culture. And we hear that phrase and we think that I should pray. And instantaneously, I get the desires of my heart. That's sort of our belief in that. Well, is that what Jesus is saying? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he will give it quickly. And they are his words to define and his words to esteem. And we know that our sense of time isn't his focus on time. God will bring to us what we need, when we need it, and no sooner. And so two areas that are vitally important for us in our prayer life, that we don't lose heart, is one is believing in the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. We can trust in his character, that he is righteous and he's good and he loves his children. And the second is that we don't believe, that we don't believe that in our petition, in our frequency in prayer, that God has somehow forgotten us, that God has somehow left us alone. Those are easy ways to lose heart. You know, one of the easiest excuses that we have for not praying is a belief that we don't have enough time. And maybe that has been an excuse that you've given. It's been an excuse that I have given in my life. But the reality is, is that we always make time for the things that we love. If we truly love someone, we'll make time for them. And frequently one might ask, well, when should I pray and how much should I pray? And what we're really asking is how much do I need to pray? How much do I need to pray to be okay with God? If we believe that we don't have enough time to pray, And listen, here's a hard truth. We have a wrong belief about God. We have a false belief about God and ourselves. We see him as either too distant, too unresponsive, not loving, unkind. Or that we believe that we're unremarkable, unworthy for him to even come to us. And we've addressed those topics. And Jesus reveals to us his love for his children, his delight in his children. He's expressed that word in this parable. God is not like the unrighteous judge. But listen, the parable doesn't say that you are unlike the widow. 
God is the opposite of the unjust judge, but you are not the opposite of the widow. In fact, this persistent widow serves as a wonderful example of what God's people should be. What does humanity have in common with this widow? What is true of us? Certainly it is in that we're helpless. We're desperate. We need justice. We need somebody to intervene on our behalf. We need help from the outside. We're hopeful. We're lonely. And we try and try in this world to convince ourselves that that's not the case. We try to convince ourselves that we don't need anybody, that we're really enough, that we can solve the problems of our lives. But those thoughts seem to only lie in the realm of inspiration and never in our reality. The widow is a picture of a humanity that is separated from God in our sin, desperate, but also in this that we have been separated from our greatest love, our truest love, our most fundamental source of joy in this life, God himself. We have sinned. We have chosen ourselves over God. We have been banished from the garden as the book of Genesis conveys it. We have been separated from the source of life and love. And in our hearts, we are desperate and we know that we need rescue. And at the same time, we have the scars of the loss of our greatest love, God himself. Something that we sense, but we can't quite put our finger on. The reason why scripture conveys and commands for us to care for the widows and the orphans with so much veracity is in that they serve to remind us of our truest self. That ever since the garden, we have become widows of our truest love and orphans from our truest home. Think about what Jesus calls his church in the scripture the bride of Christ. He is the groom. What he is saying is that only in him can we know joy. Only in him can we know peace in this world. Only in him can we be brought back into our first love. Our care for widows on this earth is a response to to knowing how much God cares and shows compassion to us. Now, certainly widows are different today than they are back then, but the the sentiment remains the same from what we read in Scripture. The only thing that will change your prayer life is truth. It's right belief about God, and it's right belief about who you are. What this parable teaches us is that God is not like this unjust judge, not even close. But it doesn't say that you are unlike the widow. We can look at this parable and see the judge and think, well, who is this guy? Like, who is this jerk? He's terrible. Like, he's, he has no right to treat this woman, this widow, the way that he does. She has no resources. She has no justice. She has no love. But he has no character, and he has no righteousness. In fact, we might judge this woman to be far superior than that judge. But listen, he is her only hope in life. He is her only hope in life. And here is our truth. Here is our joy. That God is our only hope. And he is unlike the just judge. God's character and love and authority and righteousness are flawless and unmatched. The gap between him and us is known. It's undeniable. It's truth. It's not unknowable. It's unknowable in its length and its depth. But what this parable says to us 
is that this good and perfect and just God reaches beyond the chasm and loves his children, redeems his children, and that is remarkable. That is remarkable and unbelievable. He is far too beautiful for us to deserve, but he has given himself away for us. Christ's death and resurrection restores us. We are no longer spiritual widows and orphans. We are reunited with our truest love, our truest version of ourselves, and our truest home. We are now the bride of Christ, his church, which means that our persistency in prayer is not determined by the righteousness of our own cause, but our belief in the righteousness of Christ. So friends, do you account for the size of this kind of God in your life, in your prayers? Do you account for your own lostness and desperation? Can you comprehend how unshakably good and righteous God is? And do you have the joy to know that he is your only hope? God loves his children. And they cannot be pried from his hand. And so believer, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. But do not forget who he is. Do not forget his love. Do not forget his delight in his children. But he is the sovereign God of the universe with immense power and authority. And he welcomes you. And he welcomes you. Do you have time for that? Do you have time for that? Let us pray. Lord, I just pray for myself mostly, and for us in this room, Lord, that we make an accurate accounting of our lives. That, Lord, that we don't lose heart believing the story that the enemy sows into us, that you are unloving and distant, that you don't hear our prayers. But, Lord, that we would understand that you have left us with this greatest tool, this this life of prayer, that we can know you and trust in you, and that through our prayers, Lord, that you Work through us and in us. You change our lives. And so, Lord, will you help us? Will you help us to believe that? Will you increase our love for you? And in that, Lord, will you increase our desire to pray? We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.